M-S-W Media. It feels like this is family separation. This is a way of saying your babies are not your babies. Your babies belong to the state. Prevail. Seja de Geneva Programa Pro Politico. Histoire, la Sécurité Nationale. Crimen organizado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Da brotbu za demokratia. Y ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, con ustedes, su anfitrión. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Dahlia Lithwick is here. You can read Dahlia's columns at Slate where she's senior editor covering the courts and the law. And she's been doing that since 1999, so lots of stuff to read if you go back into her archive. She's the host of Amicus, which is a terrific podcast about SCOTUS and the law. She gets lots of good guests on there. She's a regular contributing analyst at MSNBC, and she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, If you like what I'm doing on the podcast, please subscribe, review, download, and share episodes with your friends. The Prevail column on Substack has been going since November of 2019. Lots of stuff in the archives about Leonard Leo, Brett Kavanaugh, Jared Kushner, Putin, Trump, Russia, Ukraine, and much, much more. Every piece at Prevail is free to read and always will be. No paywalls ever. Your generous support keeps it that way. Subscriptions are just $6 a month, $55 a year. Visit gregoliar.substack.com to learn more. So I had a lot of fun talking to Dahlia, as you can tell by the amount of laughter in the episode, even though we're talking about scary, horrible things uh, happening in the country on the courts, just things I never thought would be relevant again, like, you know, the 14th Amendment and the Fugitive Slave Act and all all the stuff that seemed to me to be ancient history. But no, thank you, John Roberts Court. Here we are um, resurrecting all this terrible, racist, awful stuff from our historical national past. We recorded this uh, over the weekend. So this was before the Supreme Court decided to hurry up and take the case about Trump's immunity. Yeah, He's not immune, dude. I mean, everybody knows this. The The D.C. Circuit already ruled on this. There's no reason for the court to even pick this case up, as literally every single legal analyst that I can find has said. It's just basically a delay tactic. Um, but, you know, Trump put these justices there. He owns them. Alina Haba said, uh, you know, name-checked Brett Kavanaugh in her um, court appearance saying, well, this will go to the Supreme Court and Kavanaugh, you know, he'll he'll play ball. Words to that effect is what she said. And um, I don't know who the four justices were that decided to, you know, take this case, but I can guess definitely Thomas, definitely Alito, probably Kavanaugh. And then you can, you know, is it Gorsuch? Is it Barrett? Is it Roberts? Who knows? But, and they're going to expedite the case, even though the DOJ asked them to expedite the case like a while ago. And they were like, nah, we'll let DC handle it. And then they waited and waited and waited. And now they're going to expedite it to like April 22nd, something like that, like 
basically after the MLB season starts, which is going to interfere with Brett Kavanaugh's Washington National season ticket package. But whatever, they had to wait for more senior members of the court, I suppose, to uh, come back from fishing trips with Paul Singer, you know, fly back from Harlan Crow's pad up in Maine. And uh, I don't know, maybe they couldn't locate Clarence Thomas driving around the country in an RV that costs more than the down payment on Brett Kavanaugh's house. Who am I to know? I'm just a poor, humble podcast host and columnist. Uh, you know, SCOTUS moves in mysterious ways. But that's one of the problems with these people. They're so, as Dahlia puts it, oracular. They cultivate this air of, oh, they're like gods on earth with the robes and the marble and you can't have a camera in there and you can't record them talking or anything like that. I don't know that this is the way that things are supposed to be. If these guys are so special and so smart and so powerful, why don't we get to hear them talk? Like put a camera in there. I want to see these guys. I want to know what Clarence Thomas is doing, you know, during the questioning as the cases are being tried. Is he just flipping through his phone? Is that what he's doing? Um, I don't know. But I'd like to see, I think, as the American public, we deserve that right, especially since these guys are just just egregiously corrupt at this point. And what do we do about that egregious corruption? That's one of the things that Dahlia and I discuss. Like I said, really fun conversation. I had like two pages of questions for her, and I asked the first question, <laughs> and we just talked for 20 minutes, and we just kind of winged it from there, which is always a better podcast anyway when uh, – Everything flows kind of organically. So uh, this is a real good one. You're going to enjoy it. I've got nothing else to add up top. It's As I'm recording this, it's Thursday morning, 6 o'clock a.m. Uh, the sun is just barely, barely peeking behind the clouds on this very cold day here in upstate New York. So I don't know what's going to happen on Thursday or Friday. We might get the ruling about whether his name can appear on the ballot in Colorado, which, um, you know, the Supreme Court's probably going to fuck that one up too as they do dahlia thinks it's going to be you know eight one nine zero that yes they're going to have to put his name on the stinking ballot insurrection isn't what it used to be i suppose so i don't know what's going to happen in the next two days um the only good news is that it seems like trump is going to have to cough up like 450 million dollars which he does not have in the filing to the court that he put in yesterday, they basically admitted that. They're like, we don't have this money. I don't know what you're talking about. We're going to have to sell stuff. We need more time. Um, so it would be great fun if uh, the state of New York came in and just repossessed Trump Tower and these other properties and just, you know, had a big fire sale. Does anybody want to buy a gold toilet? You could finally find it on Craigslist. Craigslist Manhattan. <laughs> Craigslist Upper East Side. Gold toilet. Maybe they can put it in some presidential museum. You know, George Washington's wooden teeth, <laughs> Donald Trump's golden toilet. Oh, my God. What 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 a world we're living in now. What a world we're living in now. I can't believe we're here. Uh, <laughs> but the good news about SCOTUS is that they have absolutely no jurisdiction over Tish James here in New York. And she's going to take his money. That's it. He's going to be broke heading into this campaign. And um, oh, one more thing. People are saying that, oh, the trial's going to start. Um, it's not going to be before the election. But if a trial, a criminal trial starts in November, like let's say it starts the day after the election. I mean, they don't stop the trial just because he has to be president on January 1st. Like, can't they do the trial quickly before he gets in there? And what happens <laughs> if he loses and goes to prison? Oh, my God. 
This is crazy stuff. I, I don't know. Somewhere the founding fathers are just scratching their heads and rolling in their graves and saying, what the hell did we do? Oh, my God. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> I have nothing else to add. Everything is madcap. And I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad Dahlia was here to talk me through it. So without further ado and without more of my prattle, we'll be right back with Dahlia Lithwick. Hey, it's Nunzio Siccarelli, president of the Bank of the Bada Bing, Jersey's finest financial services firm. I'm here to tell you about a new online dating app made by wise guys for wise guys. Mobster. That's mobster, without the E, because who the fuck knows why? Need to replace your gumad? Looking for a date for your big weekend in Boca? Did Christiane Allen quit as your press secretary? Whether you're an enforcer, a racket guy, some corrupt attorney or judge, or the head of one of the five families, mobster's the best place to find some action. And hey, we won't sell your data like that lying sack of shit Mark Zuckerberg. Some people got ethics. Mobster, you swipe left, I'll break your fucking hands. And now, back to the show. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to Prevail. It's, I'm just, I'm just so like thrilled to be with you. I feel like you play in my head frequently in dark moments. And so it's nice to have you <laughs> literally playing in my head in this dark moment, but it's just great to be with you. That's so, it's so nice to hear that. I'm so, I'm so delighted. I, and likewise, I am happy to have you here, um, you know, to gain from your expertise and your, uh, the way that you look at the situations and all the stuff that's happening. I mean, you've been doing this, you've been a legal commentator for a long time, you know, at Slate and you have the, the great podcast Amicus, um, which is wonderful. And, you know, people who don't subscribe to it should go subscribe to it. But I have to, I do have a confession to make. Um, I, did not want to go to law school ever. Um, I think I flirted with the idea for like maybe a day. And I was like, no, I can't, I can't handle this. And I was really content to go through my entire life, believing that uh, Amici Curie was the restaurant where my wife and I had a really nice dinner on our honeymoon in Rome. But now because of all this stuff that's happening, all of this, you know, rise of fascism, and we have to go back and revisit Dred Scott and the Fugitive Slave Law and the Insurrection Act. And, um, you know, I've had to like learn more about the law and pay more attention about to the law than I ever thought I would have to do. So you do a great job making all this stuff really accessible for people like me. So I'm very grateful that you're here. And what I'd like to do is just pick your brand. I just want to throw some things at you and get your take as a lawyer and as somebody who has written about and studied this for a long time while I have been trying my hardest to ignore it. So, uh, okay, the first question, we're going to start with the hard questions here. Are there too many order Muppets on the Supreme Court? <laughs> ouch, ouch. You're supposed to, you're supposed to rap with the, the hardball. Um, I, you know, fun fact, fun fact. I wrote about Chaos Muppets and Order Muppets. I don't know. My son was in first grade, so it was quite some time ago. And um, by exponential exponential numbers, Greg, that is the thing 
that people ask me to like, like the one and only time the Supreme Court's public information office sent me a note and said, oh, you know, can you autograph a, a piece of yours that like two clerks are getting married and we want to frame it? And I was like, oh, will it be my impressive work in the Heller case or perhaps Bush v. <laughs> no, no. Order Muppets. So let that let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> so here um, I thought it would be fun to do. Yeah. Oh well. No, no. I, <laughs> I, it, it is actually fun. I mean, the second most read was when I wore Axe body spray for a week to smell like my teenage son. So the, Heller is like in the top two thousand, maybe. Um, this is the important the important corpus of work. I think the um, non fatuous answer to your question is that I think we might have nihilists and non nihilists on the court now. Mm, And I think that when I try to explain to people what's changed between the summer of 22 when Dobbs came down and Bruin came down and the court decided that the EPA doesn't know what it's doing. And the court decided that coaches can pray on the 50 yard line. Like that was a bad term. And as you may recall, last term was not quite, that bad. And the difference is last term, John Roberts took control of the court again, right? And suddenly it wasn't Alito and Thomas writing majority opinions for all the Trump justices. It was the chief justice back in control in in, in no small measure because he could pick off Kavanaugh or Barrett. You know, he has the three liberals. So it's a totally different court than it was even though it's the same players uh, with the exception of Justice Jackson. And I say that only to say because I know this question is coming and, and I think the Muppets kind of slightly um, foreshadow it. I think the difference now when I look at this court, particularly how they're going to handle these two Trump cases and more Trump cases and the other Trump cases, I think there are probably two, maybe three justices who are perfectly content to be the last Supreme Court of the United States in a free and fair presidential election. I think that there are probably not five who feel that if Donald Trump wins, he can be president forever until Ivanka is the president. But I I think there's three. And those are the nihilist justices. And I don't know, maybe that's animal, maybe that's gonzo, (laughs) out of my pay grade. But those are the burn it all down Muppets. I think there might be six. I I don't know. It's really terrifying. Like, I I think they they float in and out of nihilism because Gorsuch Maybe he's not a nihilist, but he is in some respects, but not others. And the same with Coney Barrett, some respects, not others. And I don't know, like the the courts are powerful. The only thing that I think is going to save us from Trump just running roughshod over SCOTUS is that if Trump does install himself as a dictator, the power of the Supreme Court is mooted and neutralized to some degree. And if there's something that these guys like more than anything else, it's having power and feeling important and walking around with their robes and all this this kind of, as you put it before we turn the mic on, oracular uh, kind of behavior. I think that's true. And I think if Donald Trump and the 2025 project and, you know, the Alliance Defending Freedom and Heritage, like all of the flying monkeys that constitute, you know, what will be Donald Trump's next administration, his next senior advisors, I think that their views on most things align perfectly well with those of six justices, whether it's the sort of, you know, extreme Christo-fascism, the the, the deregulatory agenda that says that no agencies can do anything ever. I, I think you're right. I think the only question is this other axis, which is, do we want, as, as you're putting it, to be relevant 
right? Do we want to be the deciders? And you're right. This is the court with the least humility, institutional humility, probably in the history of the Republic. But also, I think that there is a way in which I'm just going to use the word seemliness, but like doing things so they look pretty Mm -hmm. really matters to, at minimum, I would say the chief justice. Also, Kavanaugh, if you read those dopey concurrences, he wants to be loved. He wants to be right. He wants to be feted as a great thinker. And so I think where I differ from you is that check the box all the way down. I agree. They're in perfect alignment with your friend Leonard Leo, with you know the people <laughs> at Heritage. I don't know that they're aligned to the place that the entire constitutional democracy is a sort of smoldering dumpster fire. I'm not sure they're there. Good. That's, <laughs> that's, that's good, good news. news. Okay, that's we're done. That's the good news. We, thanks for joining. No. That's, the, that's the Miss Piggy take. Like, I, I think it could be okay. <laughs> I was thinking about your – and again, we, we – we, I asked you about Muppets and we didn't even explain the Muppets thing to people who are listening. So you you postulated that there are basically you're either an order Muppet or a chaos Muppet. And then you went in and explained who I mean, it's pretty obvious who the chaos Muppets and who the order Muppets are. If you're familiar at all with Muppets, um, are Statler and Waldorf part of this or are they just, you know, onlookers, you know, <laughs> This it's is, like this a is, kind of torture. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't want to even step on your impression. You go for a little while. You just no, monologue. I'm done. I'm done. I, I can do this at home by myself. The- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're clearly order Muppets. Clearly, right? We can agree. I mean, even Sam the Eagle is clearly an order Muppet. I think that, you know, as... as um, my, my children get very anxious when I start talking about The Muppet Show as though it's real. Like, they're just like, Mom, you know this isn't true, right? And I'm like, it's the only actual, like, paradigm that has survived my, like, years of journalism. Everything else I ever thought or believed, including, like, the immutability of the rule of law, um, it's all gone. But there is always, there will always be, like, Kermit and Grover. Thank God. Thank God. Um, da, 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 da. Um, it reminded me, but you, your your system is very D&D-like also, because I was thinking about it. And, you know, some of the, like, Alito maybe is an order Muppet, but he's an evil order Muppet, right? So he would be like lawful evil and a chaos Muppet would be chaotic evil. And then maybe somebody that's in the middle is neutral evil. So it's basically you've assigned Dungeons and Dragons like things to Muppets, which is also very cool. Can, can um, I make a slightly serious um, point as a gloss on that? One yeah. of the things that um, people don't always notice is that being on the court itself and more pointedly going through the confirmation process makes you evil. And so for years and years, I used to say, and I'm sure there's lots of, of audio of me saying, when Justice Alito first came onto the court, he routinely asked the single smartest best question in oral argument for quite a long time. Justice Thomas was a different person on the D.C. Circuit until he was elevated to the court. So was Brett Kavanaugh. Now, one theory of that is that they're just evil people who hide their evilness until they get onto the court. But I actually think, and I, I, I'd fight you on this, I think the confirmation process makes them crazy. And I think that whereas Sonia Sotomayor went through her confirmation hearing being called over and over, you may recall, um, a biased, racist dummy, it didn't change her. 
She's fundamentally the same person she was. And while Katanji Brown Jackson went through her hearing being called, you know, a, a feral sex, child sex predator uh, over and over again, she also didn't change. She knew it was theater. Uh, Justice Alito to this day, I think, and certainly Justice Thomas and certainly Justice Kavanaugh holds it against the country that they were shamed in their hearings. And I think there's a through line, doctrinally, like a serious through line, not just in how mean they become, but also in even the ways they think about the First Amendment and the press and the role of, you know, a free press. It's really interesting to see somebody go from sort of neutral to evil because they believe that when somebody said to Sam Alito, you know, were you a racist when you were in that club in Princeton and his wife started crying? Uh, that that means that he has now been bullied and he's going to carry that to the end of his days. So I don't know if that's a useful, a useful coda, but I think there is something about recognizing that confirmation hearings are a game and a joke and walking away and spending the rest of your life paying people back the way Kavanaugh said he would. This is no, that's a really good and interesting way of looking at it because I hadn't thought about that before. It's very similar to Twitter, really, right? Where you have people that just have, you know, thick skin and they know that it's all bullshit and they just don't let stuff bother them. And then you have the people that are like, you know, the meme where I can't go to sleep now, honey. Someone's wrong on the internet. And they are, you know, and they just get full of grievance and they see themselves only as victims. And I think in the case of Alito, we don't understand the genius there. You know, he wants us to, you know, how can you not understand how smart I am? Like, I get that vibe from him. And I don't know, like, I don't read the rulings, so I don't know anything about that. But I, that's the personality vibe that I get from him. It's another interesting thing that it just occurred to me as you were talking is that when you said the justices change, that they become different when they're on the court. Time was uh, justices would get nominated and they would invariably become more liberal the more that they the longer they stayed on the court. And that stopped after these H.W. Bush nominations. So you know, Blackman and, um, you know, the, the, Nixon put these people there and they wound up being great, which is, you know, doesn't make any sense and wouldn't probably happen today. Is it just better vetting from the Leonard Leo crew or what do you think? It's, it's a couple of things. I mean, the, the political scientists actually have a lot to say about this. And I think the way they used to look at it is, you know, of course, you know, Harry Blackman changed. Of course, David Souter changed. Of course, you know, these guys all uh, drift to the left. As you say, it's almost inevitable statistically that that's what happened. And I think what they tended to say is that life mellows you, right? <laughs> that you come on the court and you think you know all the stuff and then you sit next to Thurgood Marshall in conference and he's like, here's some shit you don't know about like having to leave the courthouse in the Jim Crow South out the side door as a car chases you, right? Like they learned a lot about yeah. things they didn't know and they changed. And every single justice for a time used to say, I might not agree with Thurgood Marshall, but when he in conference describes something that I didn't know that I didn't know, I realized I didn't know it. And you're exactly right. That just stops. That sense of, huh, I could learn something if I listened to Justice Sotomayor talk about growing up, uh, you know, how her life was. And now it's just like, how dare you import your, you know, feelings and um, woke sensibility into my rigorous doctrinal worldview. So I think one part of the answer is, that that there was just a tendency to say, as you knew more, right, you tended to be a little bit 
less fastidious about, you know, the rules have to be the rules. I think the other thing is exactly what you're saying, which is because of David Souter, because of Anthony Kennedy, because the good folks at FedSoc think even John Roberts is a squish, right? They, they were, there's been lots of talk, you know, by Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz of like how he's just a liberal dope. And so I think there's a, and this is actually important, I think there's such an asymmetry, not just in the vetting, right? Not just the no more suitors, nobody's going to budge. But I think that when Justice Breyer or Justice Kagan famously compromises with the right in the Affordable Care Act case, right, on the Medicaid expansion, liberals are like, eh, okay, you got to do what you got to do. They got to win on the merits, right, on the big, on the big thing. Every time... John Roberts, or Neil Gorsuch for that matter, one-off votes with the liberals. They want to run him out of, out of town, you know, yeah. with pitchforks. And so I think there is such an asymmetry in both expectations, like what does a good justice do, and such an asymmetry in terms of the purity test. And part of what I think you're describing is Historically, most of the quote unquote liberal judges are kind of centrist, right? We don't, other yeah. than maybe Sotomayor, we don't even have a real liberal on the court in the, you know, model of what we had on the, on the, you know, Brennan Marshall axis. But I don't think that progressives partly, and I know we're going to talk about this, have just been on screen save for so long about the court that when a Breyer defects or a Kagan defects, they're like, who? What? Okay, we don't have Medicaid expansion. Whereas if, God forbid, you know, John Roberts changes his vote and, you know, moves to to, to find find a bump in the center, then he's just seen as a pot smoking hippie and we want him out. We want to replace him with someone to the right of Clarence Thomas. So I just think it's a it's a, a, a an asymmetry in attention and maybe an asymmetry in the demand for loyalty. These are good points, things that I had not considered. So, um, and this is why you're here to, to, <laughs> to give me good points and things to consider that I'd not considered. I don't know where it goes. Do you think, I mean, I was going to ask this later, but I'll, we'll kill it now while we're on the Supreme Court. Um, I had Senator Whitehouse on my podcast two years ago, something like that. And he told me that, you know, there is no uh, appetite. There's no public appetite for expanding the court and therefore it's dead on arrival. Um, do you think, there is now post Dobbs. And do you think that we should? And if we should, what should the number be? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a, a I think this is a slight what we have here is a failure to communicate. I think <laughs> that the leadership on the Dem side is waiting for the American public to be on fire about this mm-hmm. issue. And I actually think post Dobbs, post Bruin. Uh, probably after even last year with affirmative action and uh, student debt forgiveness, the American public, I mean, it's clear from the polling, it's clear both from the approval ratings of the court, it's clear from, you know, the public sentiment about the trustworthiness of the court and the inability of the justices to disaggregate their own, you know, uh, positions from what they do. I think the public is there. I think the public is waiting for leadership on this. And so we have this slight mutually assured destruction. And I say this, you know, I've probably had Senator Whitehouse on my podcast more than anyone else. Like, I think he is a visionary and a pioneer on on all the stuff that you do too, you know, which is there is this juggernaut that is buying and selling the court and it is buying and selling 
outcomes, judicial outcomes, and we don't name it and talk about it. And there's nobody better. But I think that there's a weird sense in which the public is actually way out ahead of where most congressional leadership is on structural court reform. And I think in a strange way, and I don't know if it's a media problem or if it's a focus problem, like, you know, we're going to, I think, stipulate for purposes of this interview that still for most voters who are Dems, the court just ranks like as a number eight or nine issue. Like it's just not a number one issue the way it is, has been for Republicans. And that's changing. But I think that the sense that, you know, Joe Biden runs on, I'm going to do a a blue ribbon panel and get the smartest people and they're going to talk about structural court reform and then they're going to not make any recommendations because there's no mandate to make a recommendation and then they file a thing that nobody reads. Like, what was that? That was the moment, right, to kind of marry public discontent with the court to actual policy conversations. And that was just such a spectacular flame out, like on its own terms. And I guess this is my long winded way of saying that often I feel that when folks um, on the Hill say there's no public appetite, what they're saying is there's no normative public discourse, which is different from there's no public appetite. And so I I very much think, and this is the last thing I'll say, because I know I'm sort of filibustering, but I often think we learn the long lesson from court packing in FDR, right? Because we're like, oh, the most popular president in the history, you know, almost like destroys his presidency over this. But of course, that's not the story. The story is that the court blinks, right? And we have the switch in time that saves nine and justices retire and suddenly New Deal policies are being upheld, right? So Court expansion is not a story of like stumbling over the starting line. It's a story of like, if you make this a huge national issue, whether or not the public is there, the justices blink. And what seems to me to have happened is because President Biden just deprioritized this or was too afraid of it, and because Congress doesn't understand that making the justices blink is sometimes just as important as structural court reform. We've just had, and, and, and my proof for this is like post-Dobbs, when the approval numbers were in the 30s, the court didn't stop. There was no pumping of brakes. They're afraid of nothing, that yeah. six justice supermajority. And so my answer is they need to be very, very anxious of public discontent. And because we haven't created a, a, a vehicle for that, like there's, I know there's some good bills out there. I couldn't name all of them. Can you? Like, I think that we just have a gap. And so what I would just say is we need all the structural court reform. We need term limits and we need, you know, to think about certainly adding seats, talking about jurisdiction stripping. I mean, no other constitutional democracy is enthralled to a court the way the United States is. But we don't even have I don't think we have a public conversation that is happening around that. We just have a public, tell me if I'm wrong, that time and time and time again, is just like, Dahlia, I am so sad that, you know, I'm lying on the pavement and the court is stepping on the back of my neck. It's what could we do? What could we do? <laughs> That's where we are. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like the obvious, like I, Leonard Leo and his minions there have spent, you know, 30 years slowly, meticulously, like like prisoners with a spoon digging out of the prison, right? Slow, and now they're free and they control the yard. Of the, and all we have to do to completely make that fall down is expand the court. It's like, oh, you have a majority? Guess what? Now you don't. 
too bad, buddy. And I feel like having 27 Supreme Court justices or 81 Supreme Court justices makes it really a lot harder to um, corrupt them individually and we'll get better rulings because it's a it's a, it's a more of a cross section of thought. People will be more impartial because they'll have to be more impartial. And I don't want to have to know the names of these people. And I, I, you know, all of them, and I don't want to be like rooting for them to die because that feels creepy. But right now that's where we're at. We're like, well, you know, he was in the hospital last year. Maybe he had COVID. I don't, I don't want to have to think about that. It's terrible. You know? So, so here's the other piece of this that I think is also uniquely American is that, and you know this as well as I do, the number of justices on the court has changed many, many, many times in mm-hmm. history, right? Yes. We've yes. had six, we've had five, there's been eight, you know, functionally we had eight in that almost year when Justice Scalia died. It's, it's not, there's no rule. Yeah. Ask any of your listeners, well, your listeners, I mean, they know that, but I think that there is, and, and this goes to, I almost want to say, for the most secular country, the court is very religious in its thinking about the court. The country is very religious in thinking that the court is oracular. And that's for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. That is not the way other courts work. If you ever, it's a fun, good thing to talk to law students in other countries. And when you tell them about how mystified it is with, you know, the temple and the no, you know, you can't bring in a recording device and you have to get like a press pass to come in and you can stand in line for three hours. Like other people are like, what now? That's how it works. You know, cause we have 40 justices and they sit in panels of whatever, three, like yeah. that's how it works. And so I think that in a weird way, you know how like when you step on one end of the balloon, the other one like kind of inflates. I think that we have so imported an almost religious zeal into this idea of this apolitical balls and strikes, you know, uh, brains and vats court that we're constantly shocked when we learn that isn't true, right? And like, we learned that in Bush v. Gore. And then we learned it again in Shelby County. And then we learned it again in Dobbs. And still after Dobbs, people were saying to me, oh, but they're not going to come after contraception. Like they're not coming after gay marriage. So I think that that part of the problem is this weird learned helplessness of like, but the court, they're like, they're like gods. And I yeah. think that we have to do the two things, which is both like not gods, just people, but also if we could think about them in a way that isn't quite so mystified, we could have a real conversation about structural change. And I think that in some sense, the reason it's hard is because all of the language of balls and strikes and judicial restraint and humility and all the claptrap that the sort of Ed Meese industrial complex fed to us over years and years about how this originalism is this like scientific theory of judicial constraint. That's all right. That's bonkers. We don't have an alternate theory of the case. We don't have a way of saying this is what progressive judges do. And in that vacuum, 
what grew was judicial activism or whatever that was, or, or you know, living constitutionalism. These are the, apparently this is the only accent I'm going to do today. I don't even know it's what good. it is. It's, it's like a, it's very an order Muppet. It's an order. It's Muppet. very Simpsons, actually. But <laughs> I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, in one of the many, many ways, Greg, that we went on screen save, it was like when Justice Scalia would be like, "This is a theory of humility and restraint and scientific precision." We were just like, "Oh, I guess it is." No, it never was. It isn't. We're living in the like wreckage of that now. And instead of saying, here, here's another theory of judicial humility and restraint that doesn't involve finding out what a bunch of like white slaveholders who thought women were property thought, we've just been silent. Yeah. I think getting back to what you're saying there, this idea of piercing the bubble of the, you know, lifted, go, the great Oz and the curtains parting and the robes being lifted or whatever. I mean, maybe the Kavanaugh thing was good for something because it's hard to look at that guy as some sort of impartial anything after the, the you know, what happened to him on the, on the stand and everything that we know about him. Um, you know, I've written about him at length. Uh, it, it, I don't know how people can look at him in particular and say, this is the heir to, you know, Brandeis or something like that. He's just not. Um, and it's interesting you bring up the religious zeal about it. And because what the court is doing now, as I see it, and you could expand on this or correct my impression, which may be wrong, but it feels like uh, dark money groups funded, a lot of them by Leonard Leo or people that are, you know, affiliated with him or think the way he thinks are pushing these cases in the the lower courts that are being heard by people like that Kazmarek guy uh, in Texas who then writes something up and then uh, it, it's not really something that needs to be arb arbitrated because it's not a real conflict. It's a made up conflict that exists only so that the Supreme Court can rule on it. And the ruling with this court is going to be bad for women and the LGBTQ community and minorities and pretty much everybody except for Statler and Waldorf up in the balcony. Um, so is that what's going on? Like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Cause I want to make sure people understand what's happening right now. There's a couple of pieces of it and they're all important. And I think you're right. Almost all of them are invisible. Right. And so one piece of it is that the court has complete, discretion over its docket, right? So the court doesn't have to take any case. And I think we don't always track that. We think, well, the important ones make their way to the court. No, the court picks the important cases. So that simultaneously means that they don't take incredibly important cases. It also means they can reach out and take cases. For instance, the uh, Dobbs case, they, there was yeah. no basis from which to take that. The court took it anyway and used it to overturn Roe. And so that's a part of it that we don't fully understand. They only hear like 60 some cases a year and they determine what those cases are. And so you're exactly right. In so doing, when a judge Kazmarek, when Matthew Kazmarek is like, oh, I think I'm going to just say that the FDA approval of Mifepristone was wrong and I'm going to hang it on like the Comstock, right? Like hang it on, on, on an anti-vice statute that's been dead for decades. And I'm going to just like make stuff up using fake facts that are in fake amicus briefs that have been pulled out of the publications that, you know, medical publications that publish them. So part of this is the 
Leonard Leo industrial complex, right? Which is that you get the fake facts in front of the fake court and the fake amicus briefs with the fake science. And then you get judges who are like, oh, you know, who's which side is right? It's a fair fight. Okay, so that's all part of it. I think that the last piece of it and, and, and this maybe, you know, goes to what you're asking is that the court is being jammed now, day after day. And maybe the best example of that is that insane Alabama IVF decision that came down, right? Where you have a a state Supreme Court in deeply theological terms with uh, like fourth graders' understanding of both science and medicine, essentially saying that, you know, a a nine-cell fertilized embryo is a child for purposes of their wrongful death statute, right? And then the court gets jammed time and time and time again by the crazies who say to themselves, you know, we think we have five votes for this. And so part of, you know, when we, we opened and I said that this is a very different court than it was even two years ago, part of that is because the court is now doing the work of batting away existentially stupid cases, you know, whether it's Moore versus Harper last year, right? There's no, there's no uh, authority for state Supreme courts to pass on election processes, right? The court says no to that. And we're like, oh, well, this is a centrist court, not a centrist court. That was an insane batshit case that never should have come to the court. And so I think there's a huge Overton window problem which is that the crazy is coming thick and fast at the court and the court is agreeing to hear some of the crazy. And they're even, you know, and and we know that Dobbs was crazy. We know Bruin was crazy. We know in addition to emboldened lower courts, we also have fake facts. You know, we have 303 Creative where we have a website designer who's withholding services from alleged same-sex couples who want marriage services except, oh, Turns out one of them, we find out, thank God, the New Republic does the reporting. The alleged plaintiffs of the alleged same-sex marriage clients in that case uh, was a guy and he was already married to a woman, right? So, and this is the, the kneeling football coach, the same. Utterly fake facts that make it into the record. So I think we're through the looking glass into a world of a court that has unbridled discretion over its docket. And then advocacy groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom and other Leonard Leo front groups pushing, pushing, pushing cases that the court might not be ready to accept. And then we have fake facts and the court saying, you know, this this poor coach who was praying on the 50 yard line. And here's Sonia Sotomayor in her dissent being like, here's a photograph of the so-called private intimate moment of prayer where he's surrounded by players taking a knee. So I think it's a lot. And I think it's of a piece with this moment we're in where nobody knows what's true. Yeah. Everybody makes up their own ending and it doesn't matter what the process is or the facts are. What matters is how you feel. And in some sense, we're in the weirdest moment of Supreme court coverage because it's feelings ball all the way down. It's just feelings ball. And if you look at Justice Alito, who, by the way, in the last couple of weeks made this insane gratuitous statement about how he's coming after Obergefell, marriage equality, because it hurts the feelings of people who want to be able to discriminate against LGBTQ Americans. Like, okay, it's the doctrine of like sad. Yeah. Doctrine of sad. Well, he's the same guy that went to like medieval English anti-witch legislation to do that. Like he's, they just cherry pick 
shit that they, you know, whatever they want. Get, getting back to the Alabama things, that's the Alabama State Supreme Court, which um, good job by them to perpetuate the stereotype that Alabamans are dumb, by the way. Good job, guys. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so does that now have to go to the Supreme Court to be overturned? Is it just the law in Alabama? Like, how does that work when it's a state and not a circuit? I mean, right now it's the law in Alabama. And as of this taping, we've had three IVF clinics have said we have to pause giving services. So like, let's stop for a minute and recognize that there are people partway through this incredibly costly, heartbreaking IVF, you know, who desperately want children who literally have to stop and who, by the way, are now hearing they can't move their embryos out of state, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's confined to Alabama right now, but I think it is of a piece with this larger personhood movement, right? Which we've been, those of us who read Dobbs carefully and read the sort of theological valences in Dobbs, that was seeding the ground for fetal personhood. And a lot of these groups that, again, are the brain trust, and I use brain in like very (laughs) ironic quotation marks there, for Donald Trump's like sort of judicial moves and his legal moves, I think are pushing for life begins at conception, no IVF, no surrogacy, get rid of no-fault divorce. Like this has never been just about Dobbs. And and here's where I just am going to take a pot shot at Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh was really clear in his concurrence in Dobbs. Oh, nothing about this is going to preclude somebody from like traveling interstate to get an abortion mm. to a state that allows it. I, clearly, on its own terms, that was false. And I think that if we're talking about federal personhood amendments, we are talking about a blanket ban on, you know, morning after pills, on many kinds of contraception and and... This is this is the last thing that I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's so fascinating to watch a movement, a quote-unquote pro-life movement, simultaneously saying, we need more babies, we need more babies, we need more children, right? That's the argument, and that's the argument for why we don't want um, abortion. It's the argument for why we don't want contraception. And I realized as I was thinking about it today, and tell me if I'm just down the rabbit hole, like trying to impose logic here. But it (laughs) seems to me that when you tell folks in Alabama, those frozen eggs are not yours, right? You can't dispose of them as you see fit. Mm -hmm. Uh, The clinic can't dispose of them. Like those frozen eggs have a higher value, not just than the parents, but, you know, that's it. And I just think that I can connect that in my head for the first time to Amy Coney Barrett saying, oh, you know, we don't need um, to have uh, Roe v. Wade anymore. You can just leave your baby at the fire station, right? Do you remember she said that at oral argument? You can just drop your baby off in the in the like slot at uh, at the movie rental place and we're good. As one does. As one does. As one yeah. does. But I think it's also of a piece with, you know, you, you may remember last year the Indian Child Welfare Act was challenged by white families who wanted to be able to adopt babies from native tribes. And they bristled at the idea that ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, gave priority to tribal nations to adopt their own 
babies first, right? If, if, if there was a, a question of uh, parental fitness, it feels like this is family separation. This is a way of saying yeah. your babies are not your babies. Your babies belong to the state. And if we can farm them out to good white Christian families, then we will have a perfect, and I, I put aside how handmaid's taily that is. Cause like even saying it out loud, I'm like, you know, stop the car, you're drunk, Dahlia. But I do think it's of a piece with this idea that every one of these, you know, if you're if you are protecting, you know, uh, what are they embryonic children, according to that opinion, over the interests of their own parents? It's all of it's a version of family separation over and over and over again, which is the state will take your children away and give them to someone else. And I'm just going to end here by saying, if you look at why the 14th Amendment was drafted, that is exactly the thing they were trying to forestall was taking the children of enslaved women and giving them to someone else. This is why we have substantive due process. This is why the 14th Amendment was drafted by radical abolitionists. And we are right back into the moment where I think the idea is we want your babies. Wow. That's a Sorry. lot. Sorry. No, was, that's I mean, a lot. That's a lot. No. We, we, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pause right now for a break because I got to process this. Uh, we'll be I'm right sorry. back with Dahlia Lithwick. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. You know, a common misconception about relationships is that they have to be easy to be right. Therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, work, your significant other, anyone. I mean, we live in a world now where a lot of our social interactions take place online, which is strange, right? Because... For thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, human beings have been on this earth. There's not been <laughs> Facebook or Twitter, you know, for all this time. And now suddenly we've had to adapt to how to deal with this. And stuff comes up online because you know this person, you think you know that person. It's, it's very confusing. You know, there's no template for it. We've never had this challenge in all the time that we human beings have been here. So who do you go to talk to about that? In my case, I went to BetterHelp and it helped me a lot. It really helped me get through a hard time in my life. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. One of the nice things, it's entirely online, which is great actually for therapy because I feel like sometimes there's an awkwardness in going somewhere and you have to go find somebody and you have to talk to the, it just takes a long time to get therapy going. Um, it's hard to find a good therapist. So with BetterHelp, you don't have to wait nearly as long. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched up with a licensed therapist, you can switch if you need to, but you're you're going pretty quickly. And when you're out looking for a therapist, it's usually because you need a therapist. You want to talk to somebody, you know, sooner rather than later. So that's that's a great benefit of BetterHelp. It's flexible. It's convenient. It's suited to your schedule. I used to do my um, my sessions in my car on my phone, like at lunch hour, and it worked fine. It worked great, and it really helped me. Helped me get through a rough patch in my life, and um, it can help you too. So become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Greg today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Dahlia Ludwig. Okay, before the break, you you, you you dropped this bomb on all of us, which, again, is something that had not occurred to me. I, I think the whole, you know, frozen embryo thing is, first of all, I can't talk about it without thinking about unfrozen caveman lawyer from <laughs> SNL. You know, I'm just a caveman. I don't know your, I don't know your in vitro from your in vitro, you know. Um, it, so it always is sort of <laughs> makes me laugh just because of that. But it's not funny at all. And it's, we're, we're in this position now. You're right. You're absolutely right. If this, if we go to the logical conclusion of where this is headed, yes, it absolutely is separating families. And yes, it absolutely is in violation of the 14th Amendment. Although these guys don't like the 14th Amendment. Like, you know, in hotels, how they just don't, don't have floor 13. These guys just skip right <laughs> over 14. They don't like it. They're just like, ah, we're going to skip that. Go right from 13 to 15 because um, they don't like the 14th Amendment. And then you also brought, there's a bunch of stuff we have to talk about now. <laughs> you also brought up Kavanaugh saying about the interstate, um, you know, going from one state to the other, which is something we're supposed to be allowed to do in this country. I just, I have these fears that these laws or these rulings are going to bring about unforeseen consequences that are going to basically shake the very core of the country that we're living in. Like, it's not ridiculous to expect that somebody from Arkansas or Oklahoma or Texas who's 13 and pregnant because she was raped by her dad or something to go to, you know, somebody can take her to New York City to get medical care. And then 
Texas finds out about it, they send state troopers to go get her and bring her back. Is New York State going to work with them or is New York State going to say, no, screw off? Now, the state law in Texas that New York finds objectionable, as I understand it, does not apply in New York and New York is no way going to do that. And Governor Hochul is in no way going to do that because she wants us to all vote for her again. Uh, So that's not going to happen. But if it's a federal statute, then the state of New York functionally has no choice because by not agreeing to the law, it's nullification and you can't do nullification. And we're right back into this whole Fugitive Slave Act thing. So, and then what happens? I mean, what does New York do? Am I crazy thinking about this? This is... No, okay. no. And I think that, again, one one is hesitant to put too much force into Justice Kavanaugh as that fifth vote, right, to overturn Roe. And when he said everything you just said, which is that would be insane, you know, to, to, to burden interstate travel, you know, this that would throw us back into, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act. So you're not wrong to, to say it's uh, an issue. And I think it's also I think, I mean, there's no question. Look, and and what we're looking at even, you know, to take it out of reproductive freedom and look at Texas, right? Look at the standoff on the border where we have, you know, Greg Abbott in a fight with federal agents about, right? So I think nullification all the way down. I also think, and this is, this is, you know, just to the, the core of your question, it's not just that it's possible. I think the fundamental lie of Dobbs was that they were going to leave it to the states because we're already seeing Jonathan Mitchell, right? He was the architect of SB8. That was that um, Texas before we overturned uh, a row formally in Dobbs. We did it in the SB8 case on the shadow docket, you may recall, that fall. And that was the vigilante bill, right, that that allowed anybody who wanted oh, that was the bounty to- thing. Yeah, the bounty, okay. you know, if you if I think you're aiding or abetting was the language, uh, an abortion, I can haul you into court and I can sue you for this huge bounty and there's no state actor, right? So there's no uh, buddy to sue. And Jonathan Mitchell is now kind of the architect of um, having jurisdictions in Texas that are like, you can't drive through our town to take somebody, you know, from from, from one place to another to have an abortion. I mean, there are jurisdictions in Texas that are passing laws that are so right. This isn't even a state effort. This is a, like our township mm-hmm. is doing this. And I think that it's all building to, you know, the answer to your very grim question, which is, I think we are building to, um, you know, a federal ban. I think that when you look at the folks that, um, purport to be setting Donald Trump's, you know, policies going forward. We're hearing about dusting off the the Comstock Act, that's Jonathan Mitchell again, and using it uh, to ban, you know, not just interstate travel, but to say, right, you can't use equipment that was manufactured in another state. Uh, you can't ship pills from state to state. So I think all that's coming. And some of that was in Justice um, Judge Kazmarek's Mifepristone in the district court order. But I really think that one of the things that we're failing to see here is that even in states that protect reproductive freedom, like think of Ohio, right, where they get it on the ballot and they massively succeed on a state level. And suddenly you see the apparatus of the Republican apparatus um that governs the state saying like, okay, well, first we're going to strip the court of jurisdiction to hear Mm -hmm. these cases. Right. And then, uh, I mean, in Wisconsin efforts to unseat 
a justice who demonstrably right. ran. So I think that what we are seeing, and it just goes to your original sort of Leonard Leo and the like multi-headed Hydra things. Once you have captured state Supreme Courts, once you have Raga, right, the Republican attorneys general, once you have a kind of single-minded state determination to make this happen, there's a chilling way in which even states that are protecting it by way of ballot initiative and referendum are seeing, you know, the judiciary stripped of the power to do it or efforts to unseat justices. I think that we're even seeing that the lie of Dobbs, which is like blue states, you know, live your best life and be blue are being hollowed out from inside by a kind of a, a an operation that was designed to kind of do that in the dark of night. And, and we miss it. This is all terrifying stuff because I, I don't Sorry. know where it ends. I mean, it, 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 hopefully it ends with us, you know, taking control of the Senate and the house in such numbers that we could pass an amendment. Although the way that the Senate is drawn up, that seems unlikely. Um, but speaking of amendments, uh, let's go back to the 14th Amendment for a minute, because you had uh, on your podcast, you had uh, Manisha Sinha on recently, who um, is a professor and uh, Civil War expert and uh, has a new book coming out soon, I think, about uh, Reconstruction. And it was a pretty fascinating conversation, I thought, about um, you know what the purpose of the, of the 14th Amendment is in, in regards of taking Trump off the ballot. And her argument is like, yeah, it's the, basically it's like saying you have to be 35 or whatever. You, you have to be you, you engaged in insurrection. You're, you're out. And lots of even conservative, very conservative justice or judges have held with this and agree with it. Um, that's the that's the one part of the uh, of the First Amendment. I mean, do you think that that it, it's this whole ballot case is so weird? And again, we're, we're recording this on February 24th. It may well have been resolved by the time anybody's listening to this, so I don't want to get too uh, predicty in it. But like, what would they argue against it? I guess does that make sense? What I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, this was you know, go back decades, you know, to Justice Scalia debating Justice Breyer. They had it. They used to have a dog and pony show where they go around and debate originalism, right? And Justice Scalia would just be like, this is easy. You just go back and you do originalism, right? So this case is the poster child for if you're going to do originalism <laughs> the way the justices tell us you're going to do it, then you sit down, right, with the historians who file not one, not true, multiple briefs. Uh, Manisha Sinha told me, like, I didn't know until I, like, signed the brief that I couldn't sign two amicus brief, right? She would have signed all of them. And this is the historian's moment in the sun where there's an amazing uh, Jill Lepore brief, right? The briefs are incredible and the historians are unequivocal. They're like, you go back to section three and the drafting of section three of the 14th Amendment, it is perfectly clear that the amendment does not, that it's, you know, self-executing. It doesn't require a, a, a piece of legislation. It's totally clear what the intention was with swearing an oath. It's totally clear that the president was an officer officer, they go through all the tick boxes and they're like, clearly, if we're doing text and history, this is what they did. This is what they meant. This is what the contemporaneous definition, this is what they took out, right? This is like Justice Thomas 
here you go. <laughs> All the historians on one side. And we get to the court for the argument and the justices are all like, oh, wait, but this would be so bad. Forget the history. Like, forget what the the framers intended. Forget the fact that they were terrified, not just of reelecting, um, you know, Confederate uh, soldiers who would then, you know, put their sort of crazy KKK action into plan on the ballot when they couldn't effectuate it through insurrection. But like they were looking forward in history to this very moment. All the historians are like, oh boy, on January 6th, all I thought was, you know, section three of the 14th Amendment. They all knew what was being done here. And so the justices, and by the way, it wasn't just uh, the conservative justices were like, oh, we don't want to do text in history. We want to do consequentialism. <laughs> what we mean is it would be terrible if Colorado could take, you know, Trump off the ballot and thus determine the whole election. And and I just want to point out in addition to the like wholesale abandonment of originalism, text in history, you know, the only thing that matters is what the historians say. Like this was it. It was the crowning moment, but it was also the same court that in Bruin in the gun case was like pay no attention to the consequences of allowing people to roam free with guns. <laughs> yeah. We don't care what the consequences are. We just, you know, we are a, we are an algorithm. You just put it into the text and history machine and boom, out comes the, the, the fair result. So this is a court that is perfectly happy. And you said it before, to cherry pick history, to do originalism when it gets you Dobbs, when it gets you Bruin, and perfectly happy to completely jettison the entire project if it would mean that the state of Colorado could remove Trump for the ballot. And I think you're going to see eight to one, nine, nothing. I mean, I'll be wrong by the time this airs, but I think you're going to see a court that simply says, oh, pay no attention when we say we're originalists. What we right. mean is feelings. <laughs> I made, I used to joke that Starry Decisis was Sam Alito's drag name. That's nice. Funny. Very nice. Um, you know, the, yeah, there's no, there's no rhyme or reason to the, <laughs> any of this. I, I it's going to be interesting to see what these people come up with. Um, another thing that she said that, that struck me as interesting, and I want to get your take on this too, um, or, or it goes in a, in a direction that, that had me think. One of the things we learn from reconstruction is that we were too merciful to the traitors by allowing them to resume political activities, to resume leadership positions, to um, maybe not be in jail or be alive, maybe at the time. You know, uh, there was lots of ways that that could have happened. And I think if Lincoln had not died, maybe things would have gone better. But um, not having severe consequences for a four year war um, with, you know, about slavery, about six, all of that. Uh, I think there's a through line to now where we just don't, as a country, go back and look at things that happened before and, and, and have any consequences for them. So that got me to thinking about the pardons that Trump did. And I know that legally, um, originalism -y, there's not much in the Constitution that curbs the president's ability to issue a pardon. But on the other hand, to your point of consequential consequences, what's happened is He's taken people who Mueller convicted, Roger Stone and Mike Flynn and uh, Manafort, and, these, and just turned them free. And in a sense, there are no consequences for all of the crimes uh, that helped Trump. So should we have contested the pardons? How would we have done that? Um, would it have worked? I don't know. 
it's it's a really like actually tough question. I mean, at the time, I didn't think about contesting the pardons. I think we we sort of feel like this is a pretty absolute power and it's been used pretty absolutely. Um, and you're exactly right. I mean, if you think about who showed up at CPAC, right, who's doing all the most dangerous, I think, kind of stochastic terror moves, like it's Mike Flynn, right? Oh, it's, yeah. it's Steve Bannon. And so I think that, um, yeah, we should have, I don't know what that would have looked like, but I think you know, you're making this larger point again, which is this asymmetry point. And it's a little bit of the like, let's just like travel to a diner in Mississippi and talk to Trump voters and see if we can find an on-ramp to bring them back, right? Because they clearly can't be this diluted when he's actively campaigning now on putting people in camps, right? He's yeah. actively campaigning on, uh, you know, in invoking the Insurrection Act. He's actively campaigning on going after journalists. And we're like, I think we need to just try a little harder to understand and to make space for people to come back into the Big Ten. And you're exactly right when you say that was totally the zeitgeist post-Civil War, right? It was like, we want to knit this thing back together. Uh, they're extremely angry and parenthetically quite scary. And so we will just do everything we can to mollify them. And I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And I think, you know, Jeff Charlotte, um, does this really well when he sort of talks about Ashley Babbitt, you know, and the idea that she has taken on this like religious. Yeah iconography, right? Like this is a person who is an insurrectionist and yeah. we are, you know, and, and I think the failure to understand that if you don't impose like draconian consequences, what you get is an emboldened stochastic terror. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where we are. So, I, I mean, I, I want to think a little bit more about what it would have looked like to contest the pardons, but I think it's of a piece with this huge, huge, this is why people are mad at Merrick Garland, right? Oh, yeah. They're like, he should have come down like a hammer. This is why people, I think, feel as though every attempt to say, you know, we're, we're just going to double down and understand you harder and hold your anger in lieu of our own uh, fails every single time. And I think that you're exactly right that I think, again, <sighs> You know, there is one team here who's trying to hold together a country that is in real peril of eating itself alive. And that's the same thing we can say about the sort of antebellum, that that mm -hmm. thinking around, you know, what, whether we're going to grant amnesty under Section 3. That's the feeling now. And if you are Mike Flynn, you welcome the conflagration. <laughs> There's no tension here in the project. The project is burn it all down. And I think that we are sitting, you and I, in this deeply uncomfortable place. We want to sort of hold up the law and the rule of law and norms and, you know, all of the conventions that it turns out are just made out of like candy floss. We thought it was real. And now we're trying to bolster it. And at the same time, we're trying to level consequences. And I, and I do think those things are intention and they work against each other. And I think it's very, very hard to, you know, we're watching the success of that, right? All of these January 6th folks who've been tried, you know, hundreds and hundreds of them tried and, and punished. And what's going to happen? 
they're all being held out as heroes and every single one of them is going to be pardoned if Trump wins. Yes, so like, I think we're in this crazy, crazy escalator of trying to figure out how to mollify those who cannot be mollified. The unmollifiable. The unmollified. There's a Muppet name. I just, I'm very, I don't know at which point you say, um, never let Stephen Miller talk again. Yeah. I, I think the point was probably seven years ago, but <laughs> no, but to, to be fair, I mean, when I say contest the pardons, what likely would have happened is that uh, we wouldn't have been able to do it. The Supreme Court would have been like, no, sorry, it's not. But by doing it, by trying to do it, it sends the message that the attorney general, who I presume would be the one doing this, that the Department of Justice would give a shit about it. And that's always been my problem with Merrick Garland. I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he's evil or corrupt or anything like that. I think he doesn't understand the job. He doesn't understand the assignment. A lot of the job of the AG should have been, I think, communication and public perception. We lived through the whole Mueller time when Mueller never said a word and we had to like read tea leaves to figure out what the hell was going on. We don't need that again. We need Garland to talk and he'll, and he would say, well, I said that eight months ago. Yeah. You got to say it like really like every three weeks. And if he made a big deal about the pardons and failed, at least we would know that the people would be aware of that. It isn't normal for like lucky Luciano to pardon Al Capone. You know, that's not how it's supposed to work. So, so I'm going to say one thing as the most small C conservative liberal you'll ever have on your show, which is, I think that everything you just said, we just, we said earlier in the show about Joe Biden's dopey blue ribbon commission mm-hmm. on, you know, structural court reform, right? We could have said most of this about Eric Holder. We could have said all of it about Barack Obama, who could have, I think, much more forcefully um, prepared the country for Donald Trump and what yeah. he was going to bring. And I think that here's where I just say, like, institutional actors are going to institutional. Like, that's just, you know, I, I think being mad at Merrick Garland for being an institution, a lifetime institutional actor. Like, I'm with you. I, I want to be clear. Like, on the merits, you're right. I think that it is really, you know, to be Robert Hur and just to be like, I'm just going to take a pot shot at Joe Biden because I don't care about all the norms of, yeah. you know, this office. And I think that like what I I guess what I'm just trying to gently push back on, and it really is the answer to all of those folks who are on the court reform blue panel commission, blue ribbon commission, every one of them, like at the end of the day says the end in itself here is the rule of law and we need to preserve trust in the court. And it's just so freaking hard to do that if you don't want to burn everything down. And so I think that, while I agree with you on the merits, I just feel like you are by design. And I know this is what makes people mad, a country that abides by these ridiculous, archaic, sexist, xenophobic, LG, you know, like this is it, you know, we, we, we're, this is the, 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 we bought this crappy fixer upper and we failed to fix it up. You know, it's just a shitty, we can't flip it. It sucks. But I think that like, given those constraints, the people who tend to be like, I'm going to be incrementalist and careful, and I'm not going to give big speeches. I'm going to do the work and let the work show for itself and all that crap that's making us crazy. That's all like the brick and mortar 
yeah. of some of these institutions and they worked until they didn't work. So my takeaway is like, I think we forget that the end in itself isn't preserving the Justice Department. Like the end in itself isn't <laughs> preserving, you know, the legitimacy of the court. The end in itself is the rule of law. And when we are disserving the rule of law, which is what you're saying, we're kind of worshiping the wrong golden calf here. I think that's right. But I just think like it's very hard for people who've been institutionalized to think the way you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, institutionalized, I don't mean put <laughs> no, I know away. <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip. The, <laughs> um, no, that makes sense. And that's a good answer. And I I think the answer is don't, don't put somebody who's that much a, a, a product of the institutions into a position that requires not radical thinking, but, you know, uh, uh, unorthodox approaches to preserving the rule of law and to, you know, you can do the brick and mortar and also talk. You can, we can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but there was a line by a poet that I read where he was writing a letter and he said, you can't ask the apple tree to produce pears. And that's what we're trying to do here with, with Garland. Um, The only good thing I can say is that He's going to not be AG for the rest of his life, and I'm glad he's not on the Supreme Court because he would have been infuriating on the Supreme Court, this guy. That's what I think. I don't... So I have a, a slightly contrarian. I'm, I'm being a little more salty than I expected. I, thought I like I would salty. Just be Salty's like, good. I love you. I'm so happy to be on your show. But And I do, and I am. But I think- No, um, I want I... you to, if we, all, if we agree about everything, who can, and you know this stuff more than I do. That's why I'm asking. I want you to, Yeah. But my slightly salty, again, small C conservative hippie take is if this had gone the way it should have, which is Merrick Garland gets seated because nobody has ever blocked anybody for the reasons that Mitch McConnell did. And then Democrats actually give a shit and show up and vote about the court rather than whatever the hell they were doing in 2016. And by the way, that would have required Senate Democrats to say things like, hey, they're holding a seat empty and they're going to, you know, they're saying they'll hold it empty for eight more years. And, you know, there's three octogenarians and an empty seat on the court. So now might be a time to care about the court. But okay, crickets. And then I think had Hillary Clinton won, we would have actually had a kind of interesting court because I think we would have had like Breyer and Garland and the chief justice as this kind of centrist, like genuinely centrist, not mm-hmm. like, hey, Brett Kavanaugh is the median justice. He must be a liberal, but like a real <laughs> centrist block yeah. at the court. Yeah. And I think that might have been kind of interesting. Like I would have liked to see having covered a 5-4 court most of my the prior life, I would have liked to see a court with a big, interesting, weird, need to compromise three justice blob at the center. We will never know. It's one of the many, many, many reasons that we were cheated with when Hillary lost. I don't even like to think about it because it's so depressing. But uh, no, and, and that's a mistake too. That is, again, talking about the institutionalism, um, you know, Obama, who's the, you know, the constitutional law professor or scholar, you know, they needed to say, okay, we're going to seat him in you have 60 days and if you don't do the thing that you're supposed to do i'm going to order him to the supreme court and that's it because by not doing it you're tacitly approving it and just make that a big deal and just force it he didn't want to force it he had senioritis that whole year and ruined I, I, ruined the past seven years before just ruined it oh my god 
I think you're like dredging up a repressed memory, but I think that summer <laughs> I wrote a piece in which I wanted to see Merrick Garland just like Bartleby the Scrivener his ass onto the court, like just yeah. sit down and yes. refuse to leave and be like, here, you know, I, I choose not to. Like, I'm going to just sit here. And it's funny because it would have been, first of all, like comedy gold which no cameras could have filmed, but also like the inability of Obama to understand. I mean, you'll remember this when he was running, he said, when he was asked what kind of justices he would see. And he was like, Oh, I had huge reverence for Brennan and Marshall, but the time for that is over. You know, the political branches are the ones that make change. And I would never put, you know, I don't want the court to be an engine of, you know, social. And it's like, okay, you fished your wish. We have a court that doesn't believe in letting the political branches make change. We have now, like we have a court that decides every single issue of our lives by fiat and the political branches be damned. And I absolutely agree with you that I, I think that was just like straight up hopium right into the yeah. veins. Like if I appoint centrist moderates, then they'll start appointing centrist moderates. And it was just crazy because every single time we have seen an Alito and uh, Kennedy replaced by someone to their right, Barack Obama was replacing people with liberals to their right, too. Yeah. <laughs> like we don't, the whole center of gravity at the court tweaked to the right, and Obama participated in that. Yeah, no, he did. And, by, and, and for the record, as you wrote that piece, I was, I was saying this at the time, too. This isn't me saying it now that what he should have done. Even in the moment, I was like, this isn't right. We have a, he's not allowed to obstruct. That's not allowed. You're supposed to do the thing. If you don't do it, then you're in violation of the constitution, not Barack and not Garland. That's just, you're not doing your job. So that, at least that's my view on it. So, um, all right, we're, we're, we're running long, which is fine with me. Cause I, I keep you here all afternoon, but I know, uh, I, I have one more thing I want to ask you, um, which is sort of off topic. Canada. What's going on in Canada right now? Because it's it's um, it's scaring me a little bit because I feel like there's a Canada MAGA movement there. Um, this Polyev guy is is clearly a fascist and Trudeau feels like he's not safe. And yet there's no other real person to take the job, which is the, one of the problems or flaws in a parliamentary system. If he was a U.S. president, he would be, you know, off with Obama doing fun things now and, and retired. I mean, I think the short answer, I, I have a friend who teases me that, like, I lived in Charlottesville in 2017 when the Klansmen and the Nazis marched. And then, you know, January 6th when it all happened. And then, like, I was actually in Ottawa covering the truckers when the truckers came to Parliament Hill. You may remember they came with I bouncy remember. castles and they, like, blocked Parliament Hill. And nobody was more shocked than Canadians that we had this MAGA movement mm -hmm. that just, in a lot of ways, like, it seemed kind of cute and funny, but, like, completely paralyzed Parliament Hill for days on end. Right. And much like January 6th, much like Charlottesville, the cops were just like, hmm, seems bad. <laughs> Someone <laughs> should do a thing. <laughs> and nothing happened. Yeah. And I think in a weird way, I mean, I have two answers. One is, you just said it, parliamentary systems are very, right? This is what Netanyahu was doing mm -hmm. in Israel, which is they are just subject to capture 
in like a second and we don't know what to do about that. Canadians like to think that they are totally immune from what goes on in the United States, right? And there's like a great point of pride in that. It's like, there's a joke, I'm sure you've heard it, like, you know, that um, someone sneezes in the US and Canada catches a cold. So like, Canada is incredibly susceptible and suggestible to American themes, but I think also really prides itself on cool heads and uh, respect for institutions, right? Like, took us years to throw off the queen and we never really did. And so I think there's a weird way in which, and this is my, I I know we were supposed to end on a slightly happy note, but like, I think we don't realize how quickly democratic collapse happens. And what scares me is, you know, you look at Hungary and you look at Poland and you look at, you know, it's so easy and everybody has this sort of sense that like, well, I'm in a system that couldn't possibly be captured. And I think, you know, which is where you and I started, right? I think most Americans are like, there's no way this is, we have checks and balances. I know this because I saw it on Schoolhouse Rock. And then when it gets kind of like swallowed out from the inside, you don't see it happening because you have this exceptionalist view of how your democracy is the best, safest democracy in the world. And so a lot of what I saw, at least in reporting out the truckers uh, in Ottawa, and I think there's... Some of that is at play now, although I don't purport to be an expert on Canadian politics, is the degree to which that stuff crosses borders so easily because it's money, it's ideas, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, it purports to be, oh, this is a, you know, grassroots bottom up movement. It's never a grassroots bottom. No, it's the same no. funders that were January 6 funders. And I think that part of the mistake in sort of this moment where at across the globe is that democracies can collapse on a dime and we don't see it coming and we don't fully understand the million invisible forces that made that the inexorable outcome over years and years. And so I don't fully understand how this is going to shake out in Canada. Part, part of me thinks like level heads will prevail, whatever that means. But I do think if you think about around the world, how we believed in the sort of post-Cold War immutability Mm -hmm. of democracies as like, this is the best system. This, you know, is is fixed in amber for all time. And, and, And maybe that's why, if I could like wrap it up in a slightly different bow, I think some of the work that, you know, you're trying to do, that we're trying to do at Slate about making democracy visible, like the architecture of it Mm. visible, is so important because I think it goes right back to all those people after Dobbs who were just like, well, but how could this happen? Yeah. It happened because there are a lot of like people like stirring cauldrons of democracy decline over decades and a lot of money. And so... What I keep thinking is, and I don't know if this is a satisfactory answer, I will almost say it to my friends in Canada as much as I say it to you. This is not self-reinforcing. This is like the work of every one of us. And if we start thinking about it in October, it's too late. It is the work of 
where is my polling place? Who is at my polling place? Is that person like post Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman too afraid to do the work? In which case can I do the work? In which case can I find seven people to do the work? Like how have I been mindful of the soft spots and put my sort of skin in the game to bolster it? And it's not it's just not going to be enough to go to a Walmart par- parking lot and get people in Pennsylvania to like sign up to vote. Okay, I'll really end here. I think that we don't have a thick sense of what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> we have a very thin sense of it. And it's just, God bless the postcard writers. I'm not slagging anyone. But this would require every minute of every day between now and the election to bolster democracy. And it still might not work, but it's just not a thing you can think about in November. Yeah. No, I think that's that's an important point. And it's true that their side is succeeding because they think about it 24-7. They're like, you know, the, the NFL player that's like, Tom, they're Tom Brady and they're always thinking about football. And we're just like, oh, season's over. I'm going to go do something else now and not, you know, not pick up the ball for for nine months or whatever. So I always say, like people say, well, if Trump takes over and there's a big, you know, fascist overthrow in the United States, I'll just go to Canada. And I say, <laughs> dude, if the U.S. falls, <laughs> you think Canada's going to be safe? Because spoiler alert, it's not. It's, you know, that, that's coming down to, um, you know, to your point about catching the cold. And this this MAGA thing is a real, you know, it's a real cold, unfortunately. Um, maybe we all need <laughs> ivermectin. I don't know. <laughs> you know. I think I really think I do believe this, the energy. And I wrote about this a little tiny bit in my book. Like if you remember when the travel ban came down, Greg, and every single lawyer you knew, like found their way to JFK airport and made their way to Dulles and held up a freaking sign in like, you know, Arabic or push to that was like, dude, I'll be your lawyer. And yeah. by the way, like I do trust in the States. Like, I don't know anything about immigration, but I'm here. Like we actually know how to do this. We have the muscle. And the problem is, and it's just your leadership point again, like we need leaders who are just like, here's what you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to, this is going to be everything you think about, and it's going to be your religion. And I, I, th- I just think like we, we know how to do this. It's just that we overwhelmingly, you probably get this too, have people or say to me, like, what should I be doing? Yeah. And I, the answer is just make people aware. I think that's the yep. one thing that everybody could do is make people aware of what Trump would do if he got reelected. So, you know, if you have friends who are gay, they're not going to be able to get married anymore. If you have uh, daughters that are of, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old and some, and they get pregnant, they're going to have to be forced to have the baby. If if you have people in your family who are from other countries and uh, maybe the INS is going to be weaponized and, and get rid of them, you know, maybe people are going to be round up into camps. Maybe uh, all the journalists and the writers and anybody who's taken a pot shot at him is going to be, I don't know what's going to happen. To, you know, we're doomed. Um, you know, that, th- these are not like hyperbolic things. These are real things. They've said that this is what they're going to do. Project 2025, which I've started to get into, is is a roadmap for how they're going to do it. And, you know, if you're not a a uh, a white Christian male, basically, straight uh, with some money, you know, if you're not Statler and Waldorf, basically, you're fucked. <laughs> so uh, we, we open with the Muppets. 
we end with the Muppets. Is there a closing Muppets song? Because it's it's time to. I, I think it's that. Dun, dun. We're going to get a lot of angry tweets if we get this wrong. <laughs> if there is an, in fact, Muppet closing song, although very fitting for your ending there, the yeah. Muppet curtain down. <laughs> <laughs> um, this has been fantastic, and, and I, I had a question about your book, by the way, which is called Lady Justice, mm-hmm. which people should go buy and read, and which is on the shelf behind you that nobody can see. <laughs> But we ran out of time. We ran out of time. I had a bunch of questions. That's but this okay. is this was That's fun. Okay. This was so much fun to have you on and 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 talk. And uh, thank you so much for for taking the time and hipping me to what's going on and uh, hipping my listeners to what's going on. Dahlia Lithwick, it's been fantastic. I, I loved being here, and I really like mean. Thank you. You you work on stuff that like makes me crazy that no one cares about. Um, so thank you for what you do because like. I, I, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8, the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely, be kind to each other, try and enjoy yourself, and until next time, we shall prevail. M S W Media. <laughs>